Whoa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. This is Connor Hallway of the Golden Hours Podcast, and this is a GDP Minute. Now, guys, you guys know I've been working on making a movie, put it in theaters all over Boston. And so I am known over time, over the past five years, to go to great lengths to get things I want. And I really, really believe that it's really important that the entire city has a chance to see this movie. I do. Because it's never been done here before. And someone's going to come after us. And they're going to want to make a movie in Boston. And then I'm going to say, dude, just look. We laid the blueprint out. You can use this. Go use it. I'm going to make a bunch of big movies here. Anyway. So essentially, I've been trying to get in touch with AMC to get distribution in their theaters. And it's tough communicating with AMC because they're a huge corporation, a huge company, huge corporate wall. So what I did is I said, okay, I've been communicating. I need to get in touch with someone who can make decisions so I can tell them about our movie, tell them what we're trying to do in Boston, tell them why it's important, tell them why we're actually going to get people into their theaters, right? So I pretty much stalked everybody on the AMC board. And I got to be honest, I'm at a place with this podcast where I've had like pretty much everyone on this show in Boston. Like I'm like the show's legit. I you know what I'm saying? Most people wouldn't do this. They'd be like, "All right, you seem too much like a psycho." Anyway, I'm kind of proud of it because I just don't care. So, I pretty much stalked everyone on the AMC board. And I was like, all right, if I can get someone on the AMC board on our podcast, I can at least tell them this is what we're trying to do in Boston. And I couldn't get any of the head execs, but I did look at their board of directors and I found a guy named Hawk Koch. Now, Hawk had written a book. And I am so unbelievably glad that I had the chance to read his book because there's this image of a film producer over time that you just got to be like a cutthroat, hard psycho, right? Psychopath. And just like cutthroat demands, need it now. But in his book, he showed that he was a pretty sensitive dude. And he just explained the process of being a film producer while also having a lot of emotional, personal baggage. And so I really enjoyed his book. So after reading his book, I said, you know what? This is actually a really good opportunity to kill two birds with one stone here. Tell him about our movie, then also talk about his book. Because the book is great. And he was a really interesting guy to interview. And I've, outside of just his responsibilities with AMC, he also used to be the president of the Oscars the Academy Awards, president of the Producers Guild of America, and he's been a producer on huge movies. Mm. Primal Fear, Chinatown, Wayne's World, which he talks about. And so that's what just happened. We just ran that episode. I told Hawk a little bit about our movie and what we're trying to get done and how I kind of need his help. And he also talked a lot about longevity in film and being a film producer and being a producer and an entrepreneur and longevity. And my big takeaway from it is you got to make decisions on intuition. You got to make decisions on intuition. And I'm trying to get better at that myself. But anyway, what a fucking grind. That was awesome. Episode was great. Hawk's a really cool dude. You guys will really, really like his book. If you want, it, it took me about like four or five days to listen to it on audio. So I thought it was great. And he, he came to his own on a bar mitzvah when he was 50, changed his name. You guys will thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy it. And I'm going to talk to Hawk, see if he can help us out. If not, not a huge deal. We ran a great episode and I'm still going to fucking fight for it. So all love my brethren. Working hard. Hope everyone's having a good day, good week. All right. I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye-bye. Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer.
Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just, you forgot to enter. Hi, I'm Hawk Koch. This is my golden hour. Hawk. How are you, sir? How are you, man? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for joining me, man. Got it. Is this live or is this taped? We are live. Okay, great. Are you cool with that? Cool. I have a I have one of our producers, Brendan, also on the phone. Okay. B, you want to say what's up? Hey, how's it going, Doc? Hi, Brendan. Hey, man. Thank you for joining us. I really enjoyed your book. Thank you. Appreciate yeah, it. it. As I was saying on the phone, it's it's interesting hearing your voice in like real life now because I've just been listening to your voice for all my long runs. Ah, oh, so you listen to the audible. I did, yeah. Is that did you use Audible as your server? I don't remember which which one it was, but uh, I had. Uh, there you go. Yeah, no, I enjoyed. I enjoyed. I wouldn't let anybody else do the Audible because it's my story, you know. Yeah, I agree. I I think uh, if I ever have as storied of a career as you do, I'll probably do the same thing. I'll probably voice my own memoir. Makes sense. Oh, good for you. I hope you now, do. Thank you, man. Now, uh, just before we move on, I just want to be super clear. I, to everyone listening or tuning in, I totally blew it on the phone with Hawk when I called him initially. And I don't want to give too much away about the book, but Hawk in the book has this, this moment of semblance and this moment of clarity where he changes his name. And so when I called him, I called him, I called you by Howard and I apologize. And uh, you were like, it's Hawk. And I was like, my bad. And you were like, listen, you got to get through the book and then we can run the episode. So I understand now. Thank you. Well, you're one of the few people who's called me Howard in 25 years. So <laughs> it's okay now. <laughs> Thank you, man. I'm, I'm on the other end of the country. Yeah. Now, uh, before we move on, can you just give a quick synopsis of who you are and what you do? Uh, my name is Hawk Koch. I've been a producer for many years. I've been in the motion picture business, television business for uh, 55 years. <laughs> um, I was president of the Motion Picture Academy. Uh, I was also president of the Producers Guild of America. Uh, I'm on the board of AMC Theaters, which hopefully I know Boston has some terrific AMC theaters there. And Hopefully you'll start going back to the movies. Um, I'm on the board of something called the Motion Picture and Television Fund, which is a nonprofit. Uh, some of you may or may know, not know about it, but it was started. That I know of in the country uh, that takes care of people in our own industry. Our mantra is we take care of our own and we do. We take care of studio executives, producers, directors, actors, costume designers, art directors, teamsters, grips, electricians, prop men, everybody that's in the industry, we take care of in one way or another, whether it's financial, whether it's creating a safe home for uh, elderly people. We have a, a, a wonderful campus for, uh, 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 long-term care, Alzheimer's, and assisted living. And uh, so, and I love what I do. I don't think I've worked a day in my life because <laughs> I've been working since 1964, actually, before, uh, as you'll read in my book, Magic in Hollywood, little promo there. Uh, before that, I... Uh, I was a roadie for a very important English group in 1964 called the Dave Clark Five, and I managed American rock groups in England before that. And I have uh, a wife of almost 25 years. I have three kids, boys, two boys and a girl, and five grandsons. Now, talking about your wife real quick, can you explain what a Jungian analyst is? I'd actually never heard of that, or a psychotherapist. Really? really? It's Jungian. Union. Carl Jung. Carl, there were two. I'm sure you've heard of Freud. 
that I have. Well, Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung worked together and Jung broke away from Freud uh, and started his own basic uh, therapy. And there are Jungian analysts all over the country and all over the world who, uh, she's a shrink. And uh, she's also a very good writer who wrote the book with me. Um, but uh, they believe they believe that there are two sides to everybody. There's the light and the dark side. And nobody has only one side. And uh, you try to explore both sides of who you are in order to get to the truth of who you are. So you should look up Carl Jung, J-U-N-G. I should. Is it is it tough being married to a, someone who can psychoanalyze you so easily? You feel like she's reading your mind a little bit sometimes? Uh, actually, it's I had some failed marriages before that. <laughs> and it's actually a very, I think all producers should have an, a shrink as their wife. <laughs> I think it's, uh, I think it's, I'm, I'm very happy. As I said, almost 25 years. So uh, uh, it's been really good. I know that was, that was a great moment in the book when you guys, you were walking your dog at the time. Is it Pepper? Uh, yes. Yeah. You, you were just like really self-isolated trying to figure things out. And then just totally coincidentally, you met your wife on a walk. And well, uh, it is a great story. You want me to tell it? Yeah, please. That'd be great. Um, well, uh, as you said, I, I had been in a relationship and that relationship broke up. And I was talking to somebody and saying, you know, as much as I miss the woman that broke up with me, I miss the two dogs that I was with all the time. And uh, the person says, well, you can get a dog. Oh, yeah, I could rescue a dog, you know. And I found... Uh, this beautiful uh, lab uh, shepherd mix named, I named her Pepper. And I used to walk up where I lived just about every morning. And meanwhile, there's this woman who had met a man uh, and got married to him about nine months later. And he was almost immediately diagnosed with lymphoma. And for the two years of their marriage, uh, is basically trying to save his life and he passed away. And for the next two years, she basically didn't do much. She did her work, but didn't go out, was, you know, in her mind still being a widow. And uh, so on the two year anniversary of her husband's death, she goes up to this hiking area, not a public area, but people who live in this particular area um, to do a ritual to say goodbye to her husband and say it's time after two years to move on with her life. She does the ritual up on top of this hill. And as she's coming down the hill with her two dogs, I'm coming up the hill with my dog. And we met. And uh, it was a Friday and I asked her out for a Tuesday night. I'm an incurable romantic. And I said, well, there's gonna be a full moon. You wanna come out with me? We'll walk the dogs under the full moon. I think it's a great time to walk. And in her mind, she said, no way, I'm married. But she also said, you know what, on a day like today, maybe I should. And she said, yes. And the rest is history. <laughs> when, you, when you reflect back on your life and some of the key moments in your book, are you a big believer in destiny? Because something like that just, it literally seems like a movie. Yes, I do believe that. I, I believe sometimes you can make your own destiny. I believe that, uh, that if, you're, if you're willing to grow and you're willing to be awake and aware and conscious of what's going on in your life, I think then when things come to you, you can be ready for them. Uh, if you're you know, totally have blinders on and uh, only dealing with your own ego, uh, I think you miss a lot of things will pass you by that might really be great for you. How do you keep yourself in check, especially in the over the course of your career when you've had these huge wins? How have you managed your ego? I feel like it's really it would be really tough. Uh, honestly, I'm always grateful. <laughs> uh, I I really work hard, 
although I don't call it work, I love what I do, but I, I believe kind of, I don't know if anybody's read, uh, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, you know, 10,000 hours um, about, you know, if, if you do the work, again, good things can happen. And uh, I think probably you're talking about the night that uh, I was elected president of the Motion Picture Academy. It was, you know, I didn't think I was going to get elected, but what I realized was I had done the work and my peers saw that I was ready for it, probably f more than I knew that I was ready for it, but it felt great. And I, I didn't dwell on, wow, I'm president of the academy. What I did is I got up the next morning and went to work to try and you know make the academy as good as I could and do all the things that I felt were the right things um, to do. Um, Honestly, I'm certainly not anywhere close to Joe Biden, but I look at Joe Biden and I say, here's, here's a guy without an ego. Here's a guy just going out and doing everything he can to make America better, as opposed to talking about himself. Now, in your early career, though, as a producer, like, I mean, you also reflect on some of those I told you, I really love that scene with Jack Nicholson where like the director was really trying to break into his trailer and he like spikes the TV. I thought that well, was- Well, 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 you want me to tell you, you want me to tell the story or you'll just go ahead? I, I don't know what- Could I pivot to a question real quick? Sure. So, I mean, you're like a storied young producer in Hollywood at this time. And from what I, I know and what I imagine, this is a time in Hollywood where everything is super celebrity driven- the movie business is much different. Movies are super important. And you're a popular producer at this time. So even then, you still had the same mindset, head down, just work, don't really get involved in the celebrity life whatsoever. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, I, I wasn't a producer at that time. I was the assistant director, but I was one of the top ADs in the business. But, you know, um, again, if you're conscious and you get to work with tremendous talent. I'm in awe of that talent, and I am respected for the work that I do. But it's, you know, it, it, I'm just like anybody else while you meet Jack Nicholson and you see his talent. So I'm not there looking for an autograph. I'm there doing the best I can to help that movie, Chinatown, specifically on that one, uh, become the best movie it can and I'm surrounded by, you know, Academy Award winners, a brilliant, brilliant production designers, costume designers, cinematographers, writers, directors, producers. And I'm just, I'm, I'm one of them all trying to do the best. So it's not about, it's never been about ego for me. Now, early in the book, you describe I don't want to give too much away and I'll let you speak on it, but you describe a lot of your, the driving force inside you for career success to kind of shift out of your father's shadow, which I don't understand it in the same aspect as you do. But my dad is, he's a successful guy in Boston for what he does. And so I understood exactly what you were saying when people would come up to you and say like, let me tell you an awesome story about your father. I've gotten that a million times, man. Is, your, is your father's name Connor? It's not. It's David. But okay. that David was a great guy, man. Okay. And, well, uh, I think good for you that David's a great guy. Uh, but if your name was David Jr., <laughs> uh, it, it, might, it might tilt the scales a little bit. I hear you. <laughs> I don't know how often you were told about how great your dad was. But for me because the only time I really saw my dad was on a movie set or around the movies. Therefore, all the people that I met, and I was Howard Koch Jr., uh, the first thing they said to me was, oh, boy, you must be so proud to have a father like you have. Do you know what a wonderful man he is? Do you know how kind, how sweet? Boy, you know, please say hi to him for me. They never said to me, what do you do? Or how are you? Or are you in school? No, no, no. It was always about my dad. And this didn't happen 
yearly or monthly or weekly. It happened daily, literally, not just when I was a kid, but once I got into the movie business. Of course, most of the people I worked with either knew who my dad was or had worked with him. So therefore, I was, you know, I was, uh, I, I was always there. And I'll tell one story. I was making, a, I was involved in a film. I was a lowly second assistant director. And I went into the bathroom and I was in one of the toilets. And two guys from the crew came in. And one guy said to uh, the other, hey, you know, the only reason that kid Koch, uh, you know, got the job was because of his dad. And I just felt like, oh, you know. But the other guy, thankfully, said, yeah, he probably did get the job because of his dad. But he's working really hard and he's a really good guy. So why don't you give him a break? And I knew then, I was 19 years old, that I had to work harder than anybody else just to prove that I was me, not just the son of Howard W. Koch. Now, looking back on your career being driven by the idea, like I have to kind of just shift out of my father's shadow, although it was, I'm sir, sir, such a like, such a weight on your shoulders. Are you grateful for it now? Oh yeah, I was grateful then. I mean, you know, it's a, are you happy about it or is it a yoke around your neck? Well, it's probably both. <laughs> but <clears throat> had I not loved what I did, I think it would have been a lot harder. But the fact was, once I got through, once everybody knew me for me on a movie, they weren't talking about my dad. They were talking about, hey, you know, Koch is doing a good job. And I loved the camaraderie. I loved, for those of you out there who, you know, get to make a movie or a television show or have been around it, we really are a family, all of us. We're a community. And I love being part of that community because it's, it's also what I know. Having grown up on a, on a movie set, I know what everybody's job is. And they know I know what everybody's job is. So therefore, I have, I have respect for those who do the job well. And they have respect for me for knowing and applauding them that do the job well. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You got that reputation, man. You're a winner. Well, I, 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 like, to, I like to think that, uh, that I, I was able to do what I was able to do because, again, I worked hard and I loved what I did. So if you, know, if, if you can't wait for the bell to ring at the end of the day and you can't wait for the weekend because you, you're not happy in, in your job, boy, life goes way too fast. Find something else to do if you possibly can. I know. I like that. I like that at the end of the book. And you, you were saying lead with fun. If you're not having fun, something's wrong, brother. Yeah. I, Connor, are you having fun right now? I'm having a blast, man. Are you? Mm-hmm. Good. That's exactly it. You better have fun because who knows when it's, boom, it's going to be over. And then you're, you're laying on the ground and you're thinking, did I do what I wanted to do in my life or did I do what I thought maybe I should do? I don't mean, I mean, with integrity and consideration of others, but wouldn't it be great if God forbid you're going to die because we all are at one point, you're able to say, I lived the life that I wanted to live with consideration, integrity, and kindness. Well, let me ask you a question. So as I was saying to you on the phone, I'm currently producing my first feature film in Boston. It's always been my goal, make a movie here, use resources here, keep it here, don't go to New York, LA, put it in theaters here. Now, I genuinely love being an onset producer and director. Love it, love the action, you describe it like magic. The post-production process has been incredibly arduous though. I really am not good with the meticulous details. So that part I don't love, but I do love the process as a whole. How would you, analyze something like that? Am I still having fun, even though there's a part of it I don't like? Well, the, the way I, I talk about making a film, if you're a producer or are you a director also or just a producer? And I'm in Boston. I had to wear about 19 different hats on this thing, man. Okay. Well, uh, here's, 
I, I consider it like making a meal, okay? I'm, a, I'm gonna have Connor and a bunch of his friends over for dinner. First thing I do is I go and look at, and decide what my menu is gonna be. And I write everything down that I need at the market. I need the garlic, I need the pasta, or I need the, the meat. I need the lettuce for the salad. I need the, the, the salt, the pepper, everything. I have nothing in my house. That's pre-production. Production is going to the market and buying everything that you had on your list. If you didn't have it on your list, you're not going to be able to, you know, if you forgot the garlic and you're making uh, pasta fajoule, you know, there's a problem here. Okay. So now you I like it. this. Keep going. I like this. Now when you now when you bring it, when you bring it all home, post-production is cooking the meal. So you have to make sure during pre-production and production that everything that you saw, your vision of what your movie was going to be, you got you got your vision during pre-production, so you were ready for it. During production, you were able to get all those pieces together. Now in post, you're making the meal. So if you forgot the garlic, holy crap, what am I gonna do? I forgot the garlic or I'm making uh, chicken fricassee and you forgot the chicken at the market. Now you gotta go back and reshoot. So none of it is any good unless you've got it all there and you could now, you can also change in editing sometimes, not all the time, but you could say, hey, I was going this way, but uh-oh, it's not working this way. Maybe if I tweak it a little bit and go that way, it will work. But that's, this is the gold. You gotta have, you gotta have everything there in order to, in order to make the, uh, to, make, to make the pie, to make the, make the meal to make the film. All right, so, so listen. You, might, you might say it's minutia, but it ain't minutia, boy, because if you didn't have that stuff in pre-production and production, you're out of luck. I hear you. Let me tell you what I learned. So I'm baking my chicken parm right now, right? Yeah. It's spicy. You're going to love it. Tastes amazing. Sauce is great. But what I learned baking this chicken parm is I did not really love slicing the cheese. So on the next chicken parm I make, I'm going to bring a friend over to slice the cheese for me. Okay. Get yourself a good editor. <laughs> you got it. There you yeah, go. It's just, uh, I'm just pretty ADHD. So the meticulous edits are tough for me to sit down. It's uh, what I've noticed in successful producers a lot of the time is, and you can tell me if you're the same way, you feed well on chaos but you're also able to really calm down when it comes to post-production and really pinpoint certain issues. Has that been the case with your career? Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm honestly, I try and keep everything out of chaos uh, by, by uh, it's, a, it's an old joke that I use, but there's a woman I don't allow anywhere near anything that I'm doing. Her name is Miscommunication. I want everybody who's working with me to know, I want Jerry to know what Jane is doing. I want Hawk to know what Bill is doing so that we all understand together what it is, what that road is that we're going down. And if I'm communicating with everybody and everybody's communicating with me, there is no chaos. If we're in the middle of, a, of filming something that's bright blue sky and all of a sudden it starts to rain and it's pouring rain, what are we gonna do? All of us know, oh, if it rains today, here's where we're going. And all of us pack up and all of a sudden we're shooting an interior because we can't finish the scene that was, so that we are communicating all the time. And I also tell everybody I'm working with, Never assume anything. If you're not sure of what Connor wants, don't say, oh, well, I thought he wanted. No, go ask Connor. Hey, Connor, did you want water or did you want wine? I'm not sure. I don't remember. And Connor, if you're the producer director, 
Right. You can, you can tell them, and therefore they don't go out and spend the money for water and wine. They get exactly what it is that you wanted. Exactly. I really like, this is a good segue in the book. And I've been trying to use it on a day-to-day in my post-production right now. You said the truth is reliable. Listen, and I totally mean it. It's been hard to, to get certain advice and insight from certain producers. You know, I, I read Jerry Bruckheimer's book. There's a producer from this, there's a podcast from this producer called Todd Garner. It's hard to get insights from producers. That was wildly valuable. Thank you very much. Can you kind of explain what that means? What, what, what means? You said the truth is reliable. Oh, yeah. Uh, first of all, I was on Todd Garner's podcast. I don't know if you heard me on it. but you can I got to go listen to that. I didn't know that. No. Yeah. Um, the truth is reliable because, I mean, I'm, I'm not looking to get into politics right now, but the truth is Biden won the election. Everybody knows it. Even the people that say it's not true know it. If I tell you this is what I want and this is why I want it, if somebody says, well, I don't believe you, they're not with you. They're not with you. You, you. you have to have, as the producer director, a vision of what you want. Working with Roman Polanski, that's exactly, from the beginning, working on two of the great movies of the 20th century, Rosemary's Baby and Chinatown. Roman knew before we ever started shooting exactly what he wanted. And all of us that worked on those two films knew that he was telling his truth, not my truth, not somebody else's truth, but if I listened to him and delivered what he wanted, then it's cool. But if I listened, if I didn't listen to him, he said, I want, uh, uh, I, I want something and I say, yeah, he doesn't really want that. I want some, I'll, I'm gonna get him something else. We're in trouble. If you tell the truth in your life, even when it's really, really hard, you did something with your girlfriend, with your boyfriend, with, with your parents, that you really don't, oh man, I don't, oh, how, how am I ever gonna let them know this? And then somebody else tells your parents or your boyfriend or girlfriend, and they come to you and said, why didn't you tell me? Well, because it was so, I didn't wanna, didn't wanna hurt your feelings or I didn't want, I was embarrassed. And somebody else tells it. If you come at them and say, I screwed up or I need to tell you something I did that maybe you're gonna find out later, but I've gotta take it on me and let you know the truth. <clears throat> when it's over, that other person and you are gonna to come together. Does that make sense? For sure. I could also see that being a challenge when it comes to selling the movie and selling ideas because you want to excite people. Do you not see there being a, a benefit to hyperbolizing some of the stuff you're selling? Like, let's say you're pitching this idea to a director or you're pitching to a studio. Well, yeah. I mean, you've got to be a great salesman. Yeah. <laughs> but, but bottom line, as much, you know, you say, Man, I can't wait. I've, I've got a thousand people that can't wait to buy tickets to this. It is fantastic. It's wonderful. I look at that poll numbers of everything. And the guy goes, well, what it's a, what's, it, what's it about? Well, it's about, uh, it doesn't matter what it's about. Everybody loves it. The truth is you can hyperbolize as much as you want. The studio executive or the director or the actor is going to read the script. You can't say, hey, it's a combination of uh, <coughs> Moonlight and Nomadland, you know, two Academy Award winners. And you go, Moonlight and who wants to see a movie about Moonlight and Nomadland together? But they read the script and the script is no good. And all of your hyperbole doesn't mean shit. You got to know that the product has to be amazing. Yes, it has to be amazing. Hey, you know, the Red Sox didn't win a world championship till what, 2005? Bill Buckner. You know, we all know that, right? And look at it. You were too young, maybe, to remember Bill Buckner. No, the, the ball straight through his legs. Yeah. 
But but when the Red Sox finally won, why did they win? Because they had the best team. Why did the Dodgers win last year? Because they had the best team last year. And the most money. Well, no, they may have had the most money, but the team was the best. Listen, the New York Yankees have had the most money for a hundred years and look how many championships they've won, you know, uh, and I don't disagree with you, but guess what? Green Bay Packers never had the most money. And yet for a time they did, they won. The Pittsburgh Steelers never had the most money, but they won. Believe me, Dallas has tried forever to rekindle with all that money and they haven't won since Troy Aikman in the early nineties. Now, are you a Rams fan? Uh, I was a Rams fan when they were the LA Rams in the, in the early times. And yes, now I'm back to being a Rams fan. Oh, so you were a Rams fan when they went, when they went to St. Louis, you stopped and now you're a Rams fan again. Well, yeah, because the rate, I was always a Raider fan too. You kind of sound Raiders like a were in LA for fan again. Huh? You sound a little bit like a bandwagon fan. No, I just didn't like that. The owner took the Rams out of LA. I was really angry at the owner. So <laughs> I wasn't going to support them. And they got rid of that owner. And once okay. that owner left, then I I was okay again. Okay, I hear you. Hopefully they win one, man. I hope so. I know we, we need our Patriots to be back on the, the I've heard of the Patriots. Yeah, they're pretty good. Not this past year. They need a little bit of work, but We've had a couple of the Pats guys on the show, and we're thinking that the season's going to be a good one, man. Now, let me ask you a question about producing. Have you ever successfully Hawk Koch with his own bare hands pulled a project out of development hell, or have you ever pushed one into development hell on accident? Um. Well, I think every movie that I've made, uh, I've had to pull it out of development hell. <laughs> uh, just because you have to, you hear what the studio, you know, I've mainly done studio films, not independents. But mainly with studio films, you get all these notes from all these creative execs. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, you, you, have to, you have to look at them and say, okay, what can I do to keep the, the vision that we wanted and still agree with some of the notes so that they feel like it's theirs too? Everybody has to feel like it's our, my movie. Um, and uh, I would say, uh, I don't know that it's specifically that I pulled it out. I worked with the writers and the director to get the best script that we possibly could. And when we got a really good script, the studio said, let's go make it, you know? And there have been times where I've gotten the script to a really good place that I thought was a really good place. And the studio thought it was shit and said, no, we're not gonna make it. <laughs> like I've heard stories about The Fighter, which is obviously a really popular movie from around here. Have you seen it? Oh, sure. Yeah, I've heard stories about Wahlberg trying to develop that script in that project for like 14 years before coming into fruition. Have you ever worked on a project similar? Oh yeah, forever. And I, a friend of mine who lives not far from you, Bill Horberg produced the Queen's Gambit, which was the number one uh, uh, mini limited series this year. I don't know if you caught it. Uh, and 20 years Bill worked on that to, to finally get it made. Uh, I started a movie called The Pope of Greenwich Village, which was a, uh, a popular book. And I started out with Francis Coppola directing, Jimmy Kahn and Al Pacino. Uh, and I went away to do a movie in Europe. When I came back, they had all left. <laughs> and I ended up with a whole different cast, including Mickey Rourke, who was in The Fighter. Um, Mickey Rourke, Eric Roberts, and a guy named Stuart Rosenberg directed it. And it was a cult hit. Uh, if you never saw The Pope of Greenwich Village, I think you'd really like it. You seem like the kind of guy who might really like that movie. 
Write it down, the Pope of Greenwich Village. You know what? I will write that down. Can you give me five seconds, man? Yeah. Sounds good. Now, now, what are you watching currently? Are you a, are you a big streaming guy? I mean, obviously, theaters have been shut down. Uh, am I a big streaming guy? Uh, I can't wait to go back into the movie theaters, smell the popcorn, sit with a whole bunch of other people, and either be scared or laugh my ass off, be gripped by the drama and the size of the screen. That's where I want to be. Uh, during COVID, I mean, I couldn't do that. So yeah, I watched movies mainly on television or on whatever you call it, our screen, I don't know, still television. But uh, I hope that you and your compatriots once, and, and the movies are opening. There's huge movies coming on Memorial Day. You know, it's what, next weekend, not this coming weekend. Uh, there's some great movies. Hopefully you're gonna say, I don't wanna watch it at home. I want to take my girlfriend or my boyfriend or my buddies and go to the movies. Hawk, even better. Listen to this sales pitch. I have been actually working directly with AMC saying, listen, I made a completely Boston centric movie. I want to put it in your AMC theater downtown. And I want to sell out the IMAX, your biggest theater downtown. I've been working with them back and forth. They hit me with a hefty price tag. And I said, listen, we got to talk about this because this is going to be your first sold out show down there. But that is my plan with our movie. I want to do a huge screening in an AMC. Well, did, did you shoot it in IMAX? We did not, but they can take a, a traditional DSP on that screen. Ah, okay. Well, uh, good luck to you. As I said, I'm on the board. I'm not in management. So I can't help you there. <laughs> if you I got involved in Connor. That Connor's a good guy. Yeah. Okay. Which theater? AMC Tremont, Boston Common. Okay. I'll check it out. Thank you, man. Yeah. I'll, I will. Uh, when we get off the phone too, the Zoom, I definitely want to shoot you at least a section of my film. You can critique it. Okay. Now, question for you. There's a huge gap now, as you know, with streaming and Huge franchise movies, independent movies, not a whole lot of middle ground. There's not a whole lot of those 10, 20 million dollar movies anymore. Do you think there will be a resurgence of that ever? Uh, I can't look in a crystal ball. Uh, I do know that when I look at China and Australia and New Zealand, where the movie theaters have been open for a while now, people are just, they, they're, the theaters are loaded. Everybody wants to go back out, get outside, stop living in their home. So, uh, and I think that, uh, I think this new, uh, the fact that Warner Brothers is now been separated from AT&T, I don't know if you read that this week. Uh, and there's a guy named David Zaslav, who's uh, with Discovery, who's now in charge. Uh, I know that he loves movies. And I have a friend named Toby Emmerich who runs uh, production uh, at, at Warner Brothers. And boy, does he love movies. Toby and I did a movie together oh, 21 years ago called Frequency. If you never saw that with Dennis Quaid, write that one down too. That's a good movie. You'd like that. Especially you're a sports fan. Write down Frequency, Dennis Quaid. Um, but uh, that was Toby's first movie. But I think there are a few people in our industry who still want to make movies for movie theaters that aren't just the big, you know, Marvel, you know, franchise movies because they love to go to the movies and they, they love the community. Uh, unfortunately, as we siphon down to only a very few uh, companies that are running everything. There are people who are there only for the bottom line, only for the stock price. And, you know, what's going to make us the most money? And uh, I'm not one of those people. I'm not, I, 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 I'm well off. I'm not rich. I'm not Jerry Bruckheimer. Uh, but I'm okay for the rest of my life. Uh, but 
I don't believe there are seven deadly sins. I believe there's one, greed. And I wish that somehow people could get away from greed. Everything comes from greed. I want the woman I want, screw somebody else. I want the money, I want this, I want that. No matter what it is, it's greed. And if it's one thing that I wish I could give to people is don't be so greedy. Help everybody out. Let everybody have a chance at life. And if you have enough, great. Uh, do I make, do I, let's see, do I make the next Marvel movie? Or do I make, um, let's say, I don't know, you're too young maybe, Kramer versus Kramer. Kramer versus Kramer. Kramer versus Kramer was a movie in the 1970s that won every award. Uh, Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep. Great movie. Best picture, best director, best, best actor, best actress, everything. I hope that some of, some of these filmmakers who get to be in the positions they are and can talk their bosses into making, I'll, I'll back up a little bit, in the early 1970s, there was a man named Robert Evans who, who ran Paramount Pictures. And he had a, a greedy guy named Charlie Bluedorn who owned the company. It was called Gulf and Western was the company and Charlie Bluedorn was the head of it. And he wanted to make money. That's what he wanted. But Evans wanted to make great movies. And Evans talked him into making The Godfather. Studio didn't want to make The Godfather. Evans insisted and got it made. Evans insisted and got Love Story made. Evans insisted and got Chinatown made. Evans insisted and got Godfather 2 and the conversation made. So that was a guy who loved movies and had taste and knew. And hopefully there's a few of those still out there, still running companies that will force and talk their, you know, their CEOs of a major corporation into allowing them to make not just a Marvel movie, but also the others. I also think directors for these huge franchise films, I have noticed at least, they've, they've tried to include real personal and sentimental aspects to a lot of their movies, especially Marvel. It's not like it's just all fantasy and excitement. I mean, they have great character development. They do. I'm not putting them down. I love it. And I love people going to the theaters to watch them. I'm just saying, I don't want just that. I don't want to maybe dumb down our audience to not appreciate other kinds of drama. I know. I just, I grew up, you know, like on the whole Will Ferrell, Adam Sandler, like $20 million comedy. I love that era, you know? Believe me, I wish they could come back. Now, question for you. When was the last time you were on a set? Uh, about a week ago, I went and visited a friend of mine. Oh, you mean making a movie? Yeah. Been a while. Been a while. I got involved. Huh? Do you miss it? Yes, very much. But I got involved with a, uh, a Chinese company that wanted to... Uh, make movies and build movie studios in China. And I ended up getting very involved with them and helped them build a major studio in China. And that took quite a few years. The consumer preference in China is so interesting. When you see the types of movies they like, like that Great Wall movie with Matt Damon, I was like, what am I watching? This is crazy. Different strokes for different folks. Yes, sir. There's a, there's, a, there's a saddle that can fit every ass. Or an ass that can fit every saddle. Have you ever seen a foreign film with that type of consumer preference that you really like that's like way out there? Uh, well, I mean, I guess in the 50s and 60s, 
you know, cinema verite and the French new wave to most people in the United States was really out there. But a lot of the, uh, a lot of producers and directors loved it and tried to emulate it here in America. So yeah, I've seen it. Uh, I, really bad films that do well somewhere else. You know, hey, spaghetti westerns were pretty bad, but then, you know, they got better. Once Upon a Time in America, uh, you know, is a great film, great film. Can you briefly explain to everybody listening the Wayne's World story about your son telling Mike Myers to change the line? Sure. I thought that was great. Sure. Sure. So, again, magic time. Magic time. Please go watch. There's a lot of great stories in it. Um, my, my oldest son was a production assistant on Wayne's World. I was producing, exec producing it. And my 13, 12, 13 year old son came to the set on a Friday night. And we were shooting the scene, for those of you who know Wayne's World, where the blue pacer has been stopped by a cop. And the cop is the cop from Terminator 2. The actor's name was, was Robert Patrick. And so I'm standing next to the camera, next to Penelope Spheris, the director. And my son, Robbie, he's, as I said, around 12 years old is standing there with me. And in the rehearsal, Robert Patrick comes out to the, to the blue pacer and look, looks in and looks at Mike Myers and says, do you know you were speeding? And my 12-year-old son very loudly says, well, that's not funny. Oh my God, you bring your kid to the set. He's gonna tell all these creatives what's funny and what's not funny. Mike Myers, to his credit, leaned out and said, why isn't it funny, Robbie? And Robbie said, well, because in the movie Terminator, he had a Polaroid picture and the, the, the cop was looking for a boy. So when he comes up, he should hold a Polaroid picture and say, have you seen this boy? Well, we took a, everybody said, you know what, he's right. They took a Polaroid picture of my son, Robbie. So Robbie is in Wayne's World. And when they did the scene, everybody laughed. And every time, because we saw a lot of screenings, and again, it was right after Terminator 2. So everybody in 1992 got the joke. They roared with laughter at that. And Robbie at 12 or 13 said, hey, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> I know they have to credit him as a script supervisor. Yeah. Well, he's now, he's now an entertainment attorney and oh, a very good one. Were you uh, were you surprised when he didn't take the producer out? Were you hoping for that or? No, no. Uh, he was, I think he always knew he wanted to be a lawyer. I'm not sure at this point that, you know, he's got, he's got two kids and a, he's got a big nut, so he's got to work hard. Uh, but he's a great guy. I'm, I'm very proud of him. And uh, yeah, no, uh, I, let everybody live their own lives. Don't, I guess I, you know, I had a thing about the only time I could see my dad was on a movie set. In those days, they worked six, sometimes seven days a week. So being on a set was like my second home and it was a place where I could see my dad. So I learned what everybody's job was and I knew what was going on from the time I was young. So for me, it was <coughs> really easy you know, to say, oh, I can do this because I've known it my whole life. It's like riding a bike, you know? You're scared if you've never been on a bike, but once you know how to ride it, uh, you can be pretty good. There are certainly some parallels between being a producer and a lawyer, though. You got to be a good talker, right? <laughs> well, not necessarily. Well, I mean, if you're a litigator, if you're doing contract law, it's all about negotiating and and writing everything up in a contract. I might need your son's help. I'm currently talking to Universal Music Group about getting licensing on music for a movie. His name is Robbie Koch, and he's at a, write it down, he's at a really top Hollywood law firm called Hanson Jacobson. I got Robbie it. Koch. 
Sounds good. There you go. Now, all right, before we uh, wrap it up here, I, I want you to touch on one more important part of your book, which is Hawk, for everybody listening, untraditionally had a bar mitzvah when he was 50 years old. Now, can you kind of speak to that and, and what that experience was like for you? Sure. Well, as you heard earlier in this broadcast, that you know, I was Howard Koch Jr. And even when I was 49 years old, people still came up to me and said, oh, love your dad. What a great guy. Now, what do you do? I had been a successful producer for years, but, you know, he was Howard Koch. So uh, I was in a relationship and the woman broke up with me and I was pretty devastated. And I was sitting with a friend of mine talking about it. And I said, you know, I got, I got to do something spiritual for my 50th birthday. And he was a good Catholic, good buddy. And he said, well, I've been to your children's bar and bat mitzvahs. I know you weren't bar mitzvah. Can you get bar mitzvah at 50? And I said, wow, what a great idea. I don't know if I can. So I looked around, I found a rabbi that I really liked, and I sat with him for about a half hour, telling him my life story, telling him about my relationship with my father and everything. And he said, he told me that you can get bar mitzvah at any age. Who knew? I didn't know. You can get bar mitzvah at 80 if that's the time. Um, and he said to me, well, who are you? And I very quickly said, oh, I'm a movie producer. He said, no, 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 who are you? And I said, oh, well, I'm a father and I'm a son. He looked at me, got a little angry. He said, well, no, who are you? And I was stumped because I really didn't know who I was. And I said, oh, I'm a Jewish man. And he said, that's a start. He said, what's your Hebrew name? Now, every Jew, Supposedly, when they're born, they get a Christian name, but they also get a Hebrew name. But my parents were non-religious, and I didn't have a Hebrew name. So I said, I don't have a Hebrew name. And he said to me, well, for your 50th birthday, for your bar mitzvah, you will be given your own name. Well, when he said that, I broke down. I was crying. And he said, what are you crying about? And I said, I just realized for 49 years, I've had my father's name. I want my own name. And he said the words that changed my life. He said, you can have your own name. What? A rabbi told me I could have my own name. And, you know, do you want to be known as Connor or Jack or Frank or Bill or Sally? You know, what? No, no. And uh, he said, well, did you ever have a nickname? And I said, well, my initials are HWK. Few people called me Hawk in, in like grammar school, but it never really stuck. And he said, well, do you know anything about Hawks? And I said, yeah, bird of prey. And he said, no, Hawks mate for life. And I said, well, <laughs> I haven't been very good at that. I'd love that to happen. He said, they also can see from horizon to horizon and they could see a squirrel like a half a mile away. He said, wouldn't it be great if you could see the panoramic of your life and the detail always at the same time? And I thought, wow. First of all, this guy's smart. This rabbi's a poet, man. <laughs> yeah, this guy is smart. And I said, I'd go away and think about it. And realized, I, I went up to a place called Telluride, Colorado, and I found a Native American guy who was selling these little trinkets. And I said, what is this? And it, it's, it was a little, little trinket, and it said, listen at the bottom. It had a little cloud and a little uh, lightning bolt. And he said, uh, you know how we listen, how awake and aware we are between the lightning and the thunder? the lightning bolt in the cloud. He said, we, we, we can smell a, a thunderstorm. We can hear it. We see it. We taste it. We feel it. Wouldn't it be great if you could be as awake and aware as the way you are between the lightning and the thunder, if you could be that awake and aware all the time in your life, 
Don't just wait for that, but be awake and aware all the time. Be that conscious. And so I bought that trinket. And that's my initials HWK. And that's the A in Hawk, trying to be awake and aware all the time, to be conscious, not just, you know, somebody says, you know you're allergic to nuts. Why did you eat a peanut? I don't know. I wasn't thinking. Well, you better be thinking or you're going to die. What are you doing walking in the, it says don't walk. What are you walking? You know, be conscious. Be conscious of what, you know, your girlfriend, you got, have you got a girlfriend, Connor? Not right now. Do you have one for me? <laughs> All right. You got a buddy. And you say something that hurts your buddy's feelings. Why? Did you really think about what you were going to say before you hurt your buddy's feelings? Or was there another way to say it that wouldn't hurt your buddy's feelings? You have to be that awake and aware all the time. Now, Hawk, can I ask you a question? How did you acquire your intuition? Because over the course of this entire episode, you've described a multitude of situations where you made decisions purely based off intuition. Is that a muscle you've had to work or? Uh, my wife says that I'm very intuitive. Um, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, I get a lot of these requests to, to do podcasts. And for some reason, I've turned most of them down. But for some reason, uh, just I felt like you'd be a good guy to talk to. Was your, was your gut right? Yeah, I'm enjoying it. <laughs> nice. I know, but but you just you keep talking about being conscientious in certain situations and conscious, conscious and conscientious. Yes. Yeah. yeah now, I could probably benefit from that personally, because I think a lot of people I'm 25 years old, a lot of people at our age are at an impasse on the right decisions to make. Everyone says, trust your gut, trust your gut. I wish it was that easy, but sometimes you don't know if it's your mind playing tricks on you or it's actually the right decision. Does that make sense? Yeah. Go with your gut. If, if that road is taking you after your gut decision, if that road's taking you a place you didn't want to go, turn around and go a different way. But I always say, show up, show up. You know, you say, Oh, I don't want to go to that. Or, but if you show up, look who you met. Wow, you met this person who had a great idea for a movie, and he's an actor or she's a director, whatever, whatever it is. And all of a sudden, man, if I hadn't gone to that park, if I didn't take the walk up on that hill that day with my dog, I never meet my wife. Show up. I and I asked you earlier, I asked pretty much every guest if they believe in destiny, because I certainly do. Have you felt like you've had a guiding hand your entire career? Just kind of help yes. a little bit? Yes. Yes. That's my guy. That's my guy. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. But I'm open to it. Be open. Now, totally random. I have not personally done it, but have you ever had any sort of psychedelic experience? Uh, <laughs> no, I didn't take any. Well, once I took a psychedelic drug, yes. Um, Did you but, like it? Uh, I, I didn't like being that far out of control. <laughs> Was this like six about your age? Okay. Yeah, I have never tried it, but it's honestly, it's been piquing my curiosity exactly the way you explain things. Yeah, I, 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 I didn't like it. I was on a, uh, I took peyote on an Indian reservation, <laughs> a Navajo reservation in 1970 with Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper. Oh, right? what a story. Yeah, and uh, I, I, that was it. Never did acid, never did any of those hallucinogenics. Wow. Now, sorry, what is peyote? Because people like just say it in slang. I didn't know it was an actual thing. Is it like a cactus or something? Look it up. Yeah, it's a, doesn't taste great. Look it up. Okay. That's the great thing about today. You can Google anything. Google here you go. Google two things, Connor. Peyote and Carl Jung. And Frequency, the movie. Well, Frequency, you got to watch. It's a good movie. Okay, cool. Well, hey, Hawk, man, thank you so much for your time today. Love being with you. Hi to everybody. Hope you enjoyed it. 
please. Magic time, my life in Hollywood. I will, uh, I'll make a plug for you real quick before we sign off here. I, uh, again, I wanna make really big movies out of my city. I wanna produce big projects here. And it's really hard to gather information, what it's like producing huge projects. There are not a lot of people who have recounted the experience from a personal level. And that's why I actually really enjoyed your book because you humanize the process a lot. And I really like that. So thank you. You're welcome. And uh, I hope your, uh, your listeners will like it as well. For sure. Um, and so before we end, we have two ending bits. The first one is, you've already kind of heard it. I made a movie in my city, man. I'm hoping, and if there's anyone you can connect me with over at AMC to help me out, that would be awesome. I'm hoping to screen it at that huge Tremont, downtown Boston, biggest screen, just because nobody here has ever done that. And so it would be a really big deal for independent filmmakers here. I want to fill the place. I want to get the thing filled up. Well, is it done? VFX will be finalized in about two weeks. All right, well, make sure it's done. Make sure it's exactly the way you want it. Okay, great. So that's number one. When the movie's done, I'd love for you to watch it. Sit back. Enjoy it. It's a little bit of an escape. It's not as artsy as some of your films and not, I don't think there's as much emotional depth as a primal fear, but it's close. Okay. Number two, this is how we start and end the show. You say, hi, your name, and this is my golden hour. Directly after no break, hi, your name, and that was my golden hour. Hi. I'm Hawk Koch. This is the golden hour. Oh, oh man, we got to start over. What happened? I got you. Ready? Listen real close, Hawk. Hi, I'm blank, your name, and this is my golden hour. Directly after no break. Hi, I'm blank, and that was my golden hour. Hi, I'm Hawk Koch. This is my golden hour. Hi, I'm Hawk Koch. That was my golden hour. Well executed, my brethren. Take care, buddy. You're the man. Thank you so much. And uh, when we hop off, I'm going to get your address so I can shoot you a shirt. Okay. All right, man. See ya.